So I'll go But I know I'll think of you Every step of The way And I On Tuesday, February 7th, 2012, Whitney Houston went to an L.A. area recording studio with her producer, Harvey Mason Jr., to lay down what turned out to be the last two tracks of her career, a song called Celebrate, written by R. Kelly, and a gospel standard called His Eyes on the Sparrow. Both songs were for an upcoming movie called Sparkle, which was going to be Whitney's first film role since The Preacher's Wife in 1996. She would be playing the domineering mother of former American Idol winner Jordan Sparks, making her film debut. Mason would later say Houston sounded great at the studio session that night and had been, quote, in a good place in the weeks leading up to the session, and he was optimistic she was poised for a comeback after years of drug abuse had derailed her career. And Mason had good reason for his optimism. Whitney had the movie in production, was the frontrunner to be the next judge on X Factor, and was going to be honored at the upcoming Grammy Awards just five days later. But over the next few days, obvious signs of Whitney's drug use returned. On Wednesday, her personal assistant found her wandering through the lobby of her Beverly Hills hotel, looking lost and disheveled in mismatched clothes with dripping wet hair. And the next night, she attended Kelly Price's pre-Grammy party at a club called True Hollywood and was clearly wasted. She got into a public screaming match with a woman Whitney thought was flirting with her current partner, Ray J, and then jumped on stage to perform Jesus Loves Me with Price. Despite the cheers of the adoring crowd, Whitney was clearly struggling to sing. Two days later, on the afternoon of February 11th, Whitney was in suite 434 of the Beverly Hilton Hotel, preparing to get ready for her mentor, Clive Davis's pre-Grammy party. At about 2.30 p.m., Whitney complained to her personal aide she had a sore throat and was unsure if she would be able to make it. The aide suggested she take a bath and relax before getting dressed, and Whitney agreed. At about 3, the aide left the room to pick up a few things Whitney said she needed. Now alone, Whitney smoked some crack cocaine and drank a bit of champagne before lowering herself into the tub. A few minutes later, the heat of the water, combined with the effects of the cocaine and various other prescription drugs she had taken, caused Whitney to pass out. Her head slid below the waterline, and she drowned. Whitney Houston was 48 years old. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. And this is Last Days, Whitney Houston. By the time she died, Whitney Houston's history of substance abuse was well known to the public, but the details in the medical examiner's report were nonetheless astonishing. The official cause of death was drowning, with cocaine use and heart disease named as contributing factors. In her hotel room, investigators found crack and powdered cocaine, as well as pipes, mirrors, straws, and a spoon, all bearing traces of the drug. There were 12 different prescription medication bottles bearing Whitney's name, including anti-anxiety meds and muscle relaxants, as well as multiple open bottles of beer and champagne. The autopsy revealed she was acutely intoxicated from cocaine when she died, and that her body showed telltale signs of long-term abuse, specifically her septum, the dividing wall between the two chambers of your nose, was perforated, 
and most surprisingly, her famously beautiful teeth were actually dentures, her natural teeth having been worn down through habitual use of crack cocaine, which contains acidic chemicals that destroys the pulpy tissue in teeth over time. So Jason, this, this this demise of Whitney Houston fits a pattern that we've seen so often. She had fame and wealth come very quickly at a very young age and just lacked the maturity and the perspective to cope with that early onset of huge superstardom. We've been doing this for a while now. We have about 30 episodes of this uh, podcast, and we've seen this over and over again in the podcasts we've done. We've got Amy Winehouse, who's 28, Brittany Murphy was in her early 30s, Heath Ledger, Chris Farley, John Belushi, all in their late 20s and early 30s all very famous and very wealthy, very young, and they all succumb to the temptations that come with it. And we've talked about this. We talked about the 27 Club and how there's this litany of famous people who have died so young from drug abuse. And it's because you just don't know how to handle that sort of wealth and power at such a young it's age. It's dizzy. It's disorienting. I mean, this makes some sense. In your, in your 20s, to have that kind of wealth, people throwing themselves at you, your, your fame and celebrity outstrip your ability to handle that stuff. And so Whitney Houston's enormous early success was a result, really, Derek, of two factors. Number one, she was just preternaturally gifted. She had an incredible voice. She was a bona fide child prodigy who was blowing away audiences by the time she was eight years old. And the second thing is her mom's cousin, first cousin, was Dion Warwick. And from, you know, basically the time Whitney was three or four, Dion sort of committed herself to making Whitney into a star. She introduced her to Roberta Flack, Shaka Khan, and Lou Rawls, all of whom Whitney sang backup for by the time she was out of high school. Most importantly, Dion introduced Whitney to Aretha Franklin, and Aretha had just uh, signed with Arista Records, and she told its president, Clive Davis, of this 19-year-old phenom she had seen, and he just had to see her. Clive flew to New York City to see Whitney perform at a club called Sweetwaters, and knowing he was in the crowd, Whitney sang a little-known R&B song Davis owned and had commissioned eight years earlier called The Greatest Love of All. Clive immediately knew he had found someone very special. She did The Greatest Love of All. That, Jimmy, was a song I had personally commissioned eight years earlier for the movie on the life of Muhammad Ali, The Greatest. Yeah. And, but coming to the microphone was this 19-year-old stunningly beautiful singer. And from the beginning of that song, she was finding more meaning in that song than even the composers. I'm glad we showed that clip, Jason, because when you when you laid out who Whitney is, she's enormously talented. We're in a moment right now where everyone's complaining about Nepo babies, and she clearly had access to a lot of power brokers, but I would never call Whitney Houston a Nepo baby, even though she's related to Dionne Warwick and got in front of Clive Davis. She's so incredible that the talent really leads who Whitney is, and the fact that she had access to people is really secondary. A few weeks after Clive and Whitney met, he inked her to a worldwide record deal, and they began working together on her first album, the self-titled Whitney Houston. The album became one of the best-selling in music history, spending 14 weeks at number one. Its first single, Saving All My Love For You, was an absolute sensation, and it was all because of Whitney's incredible voice. But each time I try, I just break down and cry, cause I'd Her next two singles from the album, How Will I Know and The Greatest Love of All, also reached number one. And the next year, Whitney released her second album titled Whitney. She liked uh, naming albums after her yep. own name, and it really increased her stardom. 
and it was even bigger. It spawned four number one hits, Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, Where Do Broken Hearts Go, and I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me. With this feat, Houston became the only person in music history before or since to have seven consecutive number one hits. Just an astonishing accomplishment. Both albums ended up selling over 14 million copies and launched back-to-back world tours. In 1987 alone, Whitney earned an estimated $43 million, more than any other musician in the world, male or female. So Whitney released her third album, I'm Your Baby Tonight, in 1990. It was big, two more number one hits, although the album only reached number three. But any thought that the bloom might have been off Whitney's rose was quickly dispelled over the next couple years when she created two of the most iconic moments in American music history. First was her performance of the Star-Spangled Banner at Super Bowl 45 in January 1991. Derek was right on the heels of the invasion of Kuwait to expel Iraq from Kuwait, and she capitalized on that patriotic fervor. Her rendition of the anthem hit number 20 on the Billboard charts, which is astounding that the national anthem could get to number 20 on the Billboard charts, and became the benchmark against which all subsequent versions have since been measured. And second, in November 1992, she released a soul ballad arrangement of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You for the film The Bodyguard. The song, Derek, is simply among the most successful in music history. It set the all-time record for most weeks at number one for any one song at 14, and it is the fifth best-selling single of all time with over 20 million copies sold. Trivia, and Ada with the top four. Oh boy, you put me on the spot. So the fifth best-selling single of all time uh, is a number one Michael Jackson song. White Christmas is number one. Oh, a little dang. bit, a little I... bit of a trick because he's ha- every Christmas uh, he sells more and more. There's a French song, Christmas song, which is actually number three. Candle in the Wind by Elton John is number two, published in the wake of Princess Diana's death. The Princess death. Diana version, right. yes, the 1997 Candle in the Wind. And the fourth is Bill Haley and his comments uh, for Rock Around the Clock, the wow. first rock and roll song. It was a single in the 50s. And it invented the single, basically, so every kid went and bought it. So but anyway, no one talks the big, only huh? four, nobody talks big, only four songs bigger than uh, I Will Always Love, love that piece of trivia. But more than the commercial success, the song cemented Whitney's status as the person with the greatest singing voice in the history of pop music. You know, Aretha Franklin is obviously the queen of soul and Freddie Mercury's four octave range is legendary in rock and roll. But when it comes to pop, I Will Always Love You put Whitney in a category by herself. I mean, she is still regarded, Jason, I think, as one of the best voices that we have ever heard. You think about Mariah Carey, you think about Whitney Houston, you think about Celine Dion, you think about Aretha Franklin. To me, those are the Mount Rushmore of female vocalists to this day, and I don't think it's going anywhere Clive Davis said it, and I think it's true. There is nobody in the world other than Whitney Houston who could have pulled off I Will Always Love You with that arrangement, obviously Dolly's great and she sang sure. her own version, but with that arrangement, he says there's nobody in the world, Aretha Franklin included, who could have pulled that off. Absolutely. So the same year The Bodyguard comes out, Whitney marries Bobby Brown, her on-again and off-again boyfriend of three years. 
Their relationship raised a lot of eyebrows from the start due to their different public images. Whitney was glamorous. She was the elegant pop diva. And Bobby was the brash, misbehaving bad boy of R&B. Rumors of rampant infidelity and physical and emotional abuse plagued their relationship from the start. I remember when they started dating, she was glamorous. And yes. Bobby Brown, coming out of New Edition, was the bad boy. That's that's what he was. And even in that group, to see them together uh, was, it was, was very strange. It, it was, was jarring stunning. for the yeah, public. It, it was jarring. Um, fairly or not, it began to erode Whitney's pristine reputation. Over the course of their marriage, Brown was arrested at least 13 times for crimes ranging from drug possession to DUI to, on one occasion, domestic violence against Whitney. Whitney would later deny in an interview with Oprah Winfrey that Bobby was physically abusive towards her, but in the very next breath, she told this story. So when we got back to the house, it's funny, guys, but he spit on me. He spit on me. <laughs> He actually spit on me. And my daughter was coming down the stairs and she saw it. And um, that was pretty intense. Because I, I never, I didn't grow up with that. And I didn't understand why that occurred. But he had such a hate in his eyes for me. Because I loved him so much. That is hard to listen to. It's hard to listen to a woman talk about that and then say it was because he loved me. It's just a... a yeah, a, you're watching a domestic violence abuse victim sort of do the thing that we know so well now. Yeah. In the wake of the bodyguard success, Whitney turned her attention towards having a family and making movies, and she was successful in both pursuits. Her daughter, Bobby Christina, was born in 1993, and she released two successful movies, Waiting to Exhale in 95 and The Preacher's Wife in 96 both of which had accompanying soundtracks that heavily featured Whitney. Her song Exhale, Shoop Shoop, from Waiting to Exhale, actually became her 11th and final number one hit in 1995. Two years later, she released her fourth studio album, My Love is Your Love. It wasn't quite the commercial success that others had been, but it is by far her most critically acclaimed. She had sort of given up, Derek, this sticky, sweet love ballads from her youth, which is so commercially sort of palatable, for uh, more grown-up storytelling, more R&B than pop. It's got this jazz and hip-hop vibe to it. It's just a great album. Yeah, she was always chasing Whitney credibility in, in R&B, and she couldn't get it. Part of her love story with Bobby Brown was she looked at him as this guy who had it all. He had credibility in, in black markets, and and he also was a huge superstar. She was so glistening and, and pristine yep. that she would often get and booed at these awards She shows. took a lot of criticism within sort of the, the, the black music community for not being true to herself. And and she was, to your point, at the Soul Train Music Awards early on, she was booed off the stage twice. Yes. Um, and she sought credibility. But in any way, th this album, I think it's her most authentic. It has my favorite song of any Whitney Houston song. It's not right, but it's okay. Let's hear a little bit of it. That song is just a banger. You I just, just love, love it. it. You like do. the you don't like the Whitney the Belter. I you don't. like when she got a little I, groove I, to I, it. I have to tell you, you know, I was certainly the perfect age to be a Whitney Houston fan. I did not love her early stuff, but she comes out later in the late nineties with this, and I thought this is really great stuff. This is high level music. Gives for, you a for window life. into Jason's yeah, exactly. taste in music. 
It's unclear when Whitney started abusing cocaine. She told Oprah things got heavy after she married Bobby in 1991, but we know from her friend of 25 years, Robin Crawford, that it started at least as far back as the mid-1980s. But whenever it started and whatever the cause, it was in 1999 during the world tour for My Love Is Your Love that the problem really surged. The famously punctual and principal Houston started showing up hours late for interviews, photo shoots and rehearsals, and canceled concert dates and talk show appearances. She verbally abused assistants and roadies and would become enraged at even the slightest provocation. After the tour ended in March of 2000, she no-showed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony for Clive Davis, her mentor and, and the guy who launched her. And a few days later, she was fired from her gig at the Academy Awards by musical director and longtime friend Burt Bacharach because she refused to rehearse the song she was supposed to sing, Over the Rainbow. Two months later, Robin Crawford resigned after a lifetime of services to Whitney because she said her drug use was completely out of control and she adamantly refused to seek treatment. That summer, Whitney's mom, Sissy, staged an intervention to try to persuade her daughter to enter rehab, but that effort failed. Despite all of this, Arista Records signed Whitney in September 2001 to one of the biggest record deals in music history, but production of her first album under the new Arista deal stalled for months, and there was widespread industry talk that Whitney was crippled by drugs and it was impossible for her to record. Hurt by the public speculation and pressured by her label, Whitney announced the album's release for November 2002, and to promote it, gave an interview to Diane Sawyer in which she freely admitted to abusing in the past. But the statement for which the interview is most remembered was an unfortunate and unprompted response to a question about whether Whitney's recent weight loss might be attributable to drugs. First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. Derek, that statement became a punchline, and to an extent, Whitney did too. The crack is whack. It seemed it was in her statement that she was too rich to do crack. I mean, the black community had been decimated by crack for twenty years, and it really was tone deaf. <clears throat> it's it's more. It was, it was a low point look. of her career, and it was it, it really was an awful. You look. know, she was not only battling a, a drug problem; she was out of step with her fans and the crack epidemic that had just decimated populations. It was a really, really low point for her. And this is someone who was so glamorous to see her brought so low by this moment was staggering. So that that interview is in late 2002. Immediately thereafter, she launches her album uh, Just Whitney. It was a critical failure and a commercial dud. It was the worst performing album of her career. The following year, she agreed to be prominently featured in her husband's reality show, Being Bobby Brown, which showed the domestic goings on in their household. Despite the title, Whitney received the majority of screen time, usually in really unflattering moments. She often was slurring her words and wobbling while she walked. Critics were merciless, one saying Whitney had, quote, lost the last remnants of her dignity. I will never forget uh, the Whitney and Bobby Brown reality television show because she was so uh, clownish in it. I remember yes. there was this moment that became very, very famous where... Um, she's constipated and begging Bobby to come get a doo-doo bubble out of her butt. And you're thinking the Whitney Houston that you remember singing greatest love of all or belting the national anthem at the height of the Persian Gulf War brought to a reality show in a bathroom just with a Bobby fact, Brown. Just the fact that after that was filmed, she had creative control. She allowed that to go and be on television. Yeah. 
It's it was staggering. It's unfathomable. It really is. By the end of the decade, Whitney was in a, an absolute spiral. Her marriage to Bobby Brown ended messily with both sides leaking intimate details of their struggles to the media. She'd given half-hearted efforts at rehab at the insistence of her mother, but the addiction really persisted. Finally, in 2009, she told Oprah in the same interview we played earlier that she was sober. And in August of that year, she released her seventh and final studio album, I Look to You. Whitney then embarked on a world tour in 2010 to promote the album. However, poor reviews and rescheduled concerts brought a lot of negative media attention. Whitney canceled concert dates because of illness and received widespread negative reviews from fans who were disappointed in the quality of her voice and performance. I remember these declines were really starting to show the years of abuse had wreaked havoc on her vocal cords and she couldn't belt out. She had set such a high standard that she could obviously outsing many people, but she couldn't really perform her own songs in the way that she once had. And in May of the following year, 2011, Whitney enrolled in outpatient rehab and stated publicly that she had relapsed into drugs and alcohol. Her mom, Sissy, and Clive Davis both later said they knew at this point she may be beyond saving. And seven months later, she would be dead. So let's take up the counterfactual here. Let's, let's assume Whitney doesn't fall victim to cocaine addiction. There, a crooner like that, somebody who can sing like that, there's going to be a limit maybe on how far they can go, but she really was following in the footsteps of Aretha Franklin. She was often compared with Aretha, obviously, two of the greatest singers of all time. And there's no reason she couldn't have had that same career, right? Growing old with dignity, continuing to do concerts, continuing to to produce more music. She had all that in front of her and drugs just took that all away from her. It really robbed her. The tragedy, as you said, look, her greatest years were behind her and her voice had been damaged. There's no doubt about it. So she wasn't going to become the premier vocal talent. You know, she's not going to compete with the Ariana Grandes of the day. What she was robbed of was the victory lap. Whitney Houston is a towering figure. She's like, you know, Celine Dion I'm looking at now, who's also battling an illness, nothing to do with drugs, but... She is a titan and everyone respects her and she gets brought out to award shows. And even if she's been robbed of some of her abilities, she gets the accolades. And at the end, you want to see someone get their flowers. Tony Bennett, who just passed away for years and decades, was able to just collect uh, the goodwill of of, of such a well-earned as Whitney had as well. And all that much of that goodwill, not all of it, much of that goodwill was stripped away from her through the last years in addiction. And really, the reality show, not to overstate it took so much of the of the patina, her dignity uh, her dignity the shine off of who she was it was really a, a terrible time now a lot of people i think i want to talk about this cuz bobby brown is still alive and most people lay all of the blame at his feet for what happened to whitney houston i don't think that's quite fair look i don't think he was a good influence i don't think bobby brown is a particularly good guy but people go through their own addictions for their own reasons and a lot of that is a a, a personal struggle he may have exacerbated the problems with whitney but i don't think you can throw all the blame at Bobby's feet. Well, Robin Crawford, a good friend, said, as we talked earlier, said that her use of uh, drugs started way before Bobby Brown came along again. And they were they were codependent and they were probably bad for each other. You know, I think they were madly in love, but they were probably bad for each other. And they, to, to your point, they exacerbated each other's problems. A few final notes. Robin Crawford, Whitney's longtime friend, who we've mentioned a couple of times, wrote a book in 2019 confirming persistent rumors that she and Whitney had been lovers decades before. She said that Whitney's family threatened her to remain quiet, and she did for decades, but she eventually came clean. Bobby Brown wrote a tell-all of his own in 2016, where he divulged some of the innermost details of his life with Whitney and portrayed them both in a horribly unflattering light. He admitted he was unfaithful and abusive to Whitney while they were married, but also claimed Whitney was riddled with insecurities and repeatedly cheated on him as well. 
And in the cruelest imaginable twist of fate, Whitney's and Bobby's daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, died in 2015, having improbably drowned in a bathtub as a result of drug intoxication. But despite all of that, Whitney's legacy is that of one of the great voices and great performers ever in the history of music. As Clyde Davis said in eulogizing Whitney, quote, you wait for a voice like that for a lifetime. You wait for a face like that, a smile like that, a presence like that for a lifetime. And when one person embodies it all, well, it takes your breath away. 